0: open up to James chapter four. I don't know if you, uh, watched, but I've watched recently ESPN, uh, released a 10 part documentary on Michael Jordan. And if you were there, uh, around the nineties, you remember that we often sang, many of us sang the commercial, I want to be like Mike. Um, he was the master at pushing himself and his team to victory at all costs. And he, uh, didn't just want to beat you, he wanted to crush you. And that's what he did. Um, he is exalted by most as, as the greatest of all time. And today, uh, 25 years later, uh, Jordan is, is still winning. Um, ESPN was kind of saved right now at the time of No Sports because of this documentary that he put on as part of. I, I wanted to be like Mike when I was younger, and not in his particular skill set, but in his ability to win. So, I enjoyed watching this documentary about Jordan's life and his career. It took me back to some of those victories, watching the the wins, last minute shots. Uh, but as now, as a coach, I'm a coach. I gleaned some important lessons from Jordan's life and his successes and failures. But I also have to admit that I had a somewhat uh, a bad taste in my mouth at times, and if you watch the documentary, you know that Michael was quite confident himself, <laughs> and that's that's actually to put it kind of mildly. In fact, several times he became a bigger, and as he became a bigger and bigger star, people just flocked to him. And a few times he somewhat jokingly, this means somewhat, he said that people had met God when they had met him. Um, some affectionately called him the Black Jesus. His self confidence and pride were, were fitting to this persona. But this is in fact uh, what left a bad taste in my mouth. Those who walk with the Lord and know the true Savior, uh, we begin to see diff- different change in the, in the values of what is good and what is not so good. But often people will exalt uh, what God puts down, and what exalt God exalts, we put down. And we f- see this on full display, really, in many of our stars. So as we look at James chapter 4 this morning, the Lord is going to clearly reveal the character quality that quality that God exalts. He explains what God finds beautiful in people, the quality of which God takes notice and causes him to lift up a man or woman. And while Jordan had many qualities to emulate, his pride is not one of them. So in chapter 4, we're going to see four relationships, and they highlight the church's need for this characteristic. We're going to look at our text in two parts. In the first part, we're going to see these four flawed relationships There'll be two human flawed relationships, human between men and men, human, women and women, and then two flawed relationships with God. In part B, in the second part, it's going to be a shorter part, we're going to see the gift for godly relationships. So, uh, in the first, there our flawed relationships, we'll see the four, I'll, I'll sort of break out the text for you. In verses 1 through 3 is our first relationship. This is a fighting relationship. It's between people. The second relationship is Um, In verses 4 and 5, this is a cheating relationship. We'll see this with God. Then we're going to jump a little bit. We're going to look at verses 11 through 12. This is our third relationship. This is the slanderous relationship with people. And then the fourth and final relationship is verses 13 through 17. This is the self-sufficient relationship with God. And then smack dad right in the middle, finally, we're going to cover verses 6 through 10, which is the gift for godly relationships, which really applies to all of these relationships. So our first relationship, the flawed relationship, the first flawed one is the fighting relationship in verses 1 through 3, and I'll read that for us to review. We read James uh, 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, wrongly to spend it on your passions. In nearly every relationship in which you find fighting, you find one or both parties um, seeking their own passions first. I want this, or I want that experience, or I want this that time, because it makes me feel good. I can't get it because I, and I want it, or you've taken it from me so I will fight you for it. My pleasure is pitted against your pleasure, and so we're at conflict. <laughs> How many of us have uh, saved that last piece of birthday cake or that, that last little bit of the ice cream and put it in the refrigerator or the, the freezer, and you waited for that pleasure, but then you find it missing? And then you go on a search for the culprit of such a grave misdeed. When our passions for a small piece of cake or something much larger that we want is denied, we can act somewhat unreasonably. James uses the words here, murder, fight, and quarrel. To fulfill our passion, we will illogically choose to sacrifice the most valuable asset in life, relationships with people, and with God, we shall see. But, I want you to pause there. Before we get wrongly convicted in this area, we must understand that seeking pleasure is not the specific wrong here. God designed us with a desire for pleasure. And in fact, every pleasure we could ever experience was made by God, and the capacity to feel that pleasure, it is from God. So the problem being identified here is not the pleasure itself, but it is the kind of pleasure that we seek and how we respond to its loss. God has designed a multitude of pleasures for us. But for every pleasure, people have crafted a multitude of ways to disfigure that pleasure. God wants you to experience true pleasure and not this cheap counterfeit. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 1611. You made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. The correct response to all your desires is to look to the one who created pleasure, to ask the giver of all good things to pray, and then to submit to his wise choice for what is best for you. James says that many times we simply lack what we desire because we won't ask. This is in verse 2. And this prayerlessness diagnoses a deeper problem. We are too proud to express our neediness and unwillingness to submit to his will. Now, we all know that there's difficult people in this world. In our workplaces, in our churches, in our families, and right here, (laughs) in ourselves. Naively, when I first became a Christian, I was shocked by the conflict within churches. I thought this wouldn't exist in a spirit-filled people. I was wrong. We're still a work in progress. Conflict is inevitable. It's unavoidable in a world populated by people like you and I. The point, then, is to begin by considering yourself. Is it my passion... It is my passion, my prayerless pride, that is causing unnecessary quarrels and fights. Let me give you one point of direct application here. It might strike home. There are many quarrels and fights swirling around believers online. Many of these fights are caused because of passions and prayerlessness. Someone feels strongly about something, so they post and they push their passion. Someone else has a counter-passion, so they post back and the conflict begins. The words that are written, they don't necessarily reflect a Christian life, they reflect the cable news commentary, more than the Lord's word. I wonder if either of these parties has spent as much time praying about these said passions. Now, please, don't get me wrong. Online discussion can be good, and online communication has met a real real need during this time. We're online right now. But if these discussions are leading to broken relationships among brothers. Are they worth it? Are they worth it? If people are being hurt by our passions, is there a better way to discuss? Maybe a better platform? This is a real problem. People are being offended, and you may not even know it because it's online. Consider how even a simple like on an ill-worded post can harm someone else's conscience. Brothers and sisters, whether it be quarrels online or not, expend ten times more effort praying about your passion than pushing your passion. If you pray, I guarantee that ten years back, you will look back, and you will not have fewer regrets for the more wonderful relationships that you will have. All right, that's our first relationship. Our second flawed relationship is with God, and it's the cheating relationship. We see this in verses 4 through 5. Again, I'll read that for us you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the Lord is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? If you recall, James has been affectionately calling his readers beloved brothers. We've seen this throughout James so far. But now the tone changes, it's in a startling way. He calls the Christians adulterous. As you know, adultery, when related between God's people and God, is a metaphor for idolatry. When the bride, the church, gives herself to another without regard to Jesus, her loving, faithful husband. She's cheating on him, worshiping another. Specifically, James says that the members of the church are giving themselves to the world. They have sworn themselves to Christ, yet they have stepped out on him. They have Returned their previous, they've returned to their previous love, the world system. This could be forming friendships with pleasure, or power, or entertainment, or possessions. Any of the world's goods that are contrary to God. There are few places in life where we see greater devastation than adultery. It is the tearing apart of two people who have become one. It's one of the two reasons that God allows for divorce, Because it is an act of violence. It is a tearing of this spouses apart. And few relationships ever recover from adultery. The language James uses, it indicates that he wants you and me to feel this tearing, this pain. Not just to know it, but to feel it. It's not a little problem for Christ's people to cheat on him. And with worldly ways. We Christians need to know the gravity of cheating. Jesus the groom, has given his spirit to his bride. He has become one with her. So to take this oneness and infuse another is worse than human adultery. The Christian who cheats on Jesus leaves a place of peace with God for enmity, hostility, war. They become his adversary, his enemy. And a theme throughout scripture is that God is jealous for his people. He will not settle for a polluted relationship. Please hear, hear me right now. Please hear me. I don't want you to become defeated. But if, if, if you're cheating on Jesus, you need to be cut to the heart. It is serious when you give your heart to him, but then share yourself with another. He is jealous. He won't partner in this truple. He will fight for your monogamous love. I, I, I personally... I enjoy um, exercising, (laughs) not the painful part of it, uh, but the sense of accomplishment, the endorphins that are produced, climbing a steep hill, scoring a goal, gaining muscle. But I also know that I can like it a little bit too much. I can even move into loving it. I can move from enjoying it as a gift from God to loving it as a needed pleasure. I don't know what it is for you, but we can all do this. Some of you may be consumed. And if you don't watch yourself, power or pleasure or possessions or knowledge may seduce you and enslave you. It is serious when you give your heart to Jesus, but then share yourself with another. This is adultery, and he is jealous for you. As a married man or a woman should watch out for temptations, I exhort you to keep watching yourself. Are there friendships with the world? that have you hooked? If, if so, confess them to Jesus. Talk to him as a bride confessing her adultery to her husband. As you consider Jesus' jealousy for you and for his spirit in you, be amazed at how much he loves you despite your wandering heart. And when we return to verse 6, six we shall see a special gift that he gives to help. Okay. So that's our second flaw in relationship. Now we turn to our third flawed relationship. It's among people again, and it's the slanderous relationship. I'll again read verses 11 through 12 so we can review. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor. Do you know that your knowledge is limited? I know you do. Do you know that you're, you can't really accurately judge the heart and intentions of another? I know you do. There is only one who is able to discern rightly and fairly. There is only one who gives the law, keeps the law, and rightly judges the law. And we, we know who that is. That's the Lord. James tells us straight up, do not speak evil against one another. Speaking evil is foolish. It is pridefully stepping into the place of God. It is arrogantly becoming the judge when there is only one lawgiver and judge. The heart of the law is to love God and to love our neighbor. If I speak evil against a brother, I'm neither loving God nor loving my neighbor. And since you and I are imperfect in knowledge and imperfect in character, and since we have been given much mercy... (laughs) More than we deserve. Amen? More than we deserve. It is not the responsibility of the Christian to judge, but to think the best of brothers and sisters. Now, this does not mean, again, we've got to clearly say this, it does not mean that we don't make moral judgments. Like we said before, people are problematic. So we need to discern between right and wrong. And yet, this does not justify speaking evil against one another. There is a difference between slander and careful criticism. Slander is speaking evil. It is defaming the reputation of another. It is not for their good. Slander can even be performed with correct information and for good purpose, but be delivered in a way that is unkind and malicious. On the other hand, careful criticism is not speaking evil. Careful criticism is truthful, and in addition is in the best interest of the receiver. The Lord wants to refine you and I to be those who can give and take careful criticism. This is for our good. This is for the good of his church. It is part of the discipleship process. Now, we the church should have no part in slander. It's delivered in arrogance. It's pridefully becoming the judge whom you and I are not. So again, I want to make a direct application that may strike a chord with you. Right now, there are lots of opinions regarding politics and the virus, and some of these discussions I hear or read do not reflect the best interests of others. Many of them are downright accusatory. Maybe the right information, but delivered in a callous fashion. Some of the assertions that Christians make against our leaders are slanderous, I hold strongly from the scripture that this is wrong. We can't judge like God judges. We don't know the heart and intent. And the people we judge are our neighbors. And some are our brothers and sisters. Family, know that it is not wrong to speak out. You may be called to speak out, but do so with careful criticism. Do not speak evil of your neighbor, of one another. Think the best and do it for the best interest of the receiver. Do it prayerfully. I hope you hear that clearly. Our fourth and final relationship is again with God, and it is the self sufficient relationship. Let me read verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know, God is kind to give us living illustrations. We need them for truth to settle in our hearts. We can naively... Go about life and not consider God or the end of our lives. So, like a preacher giving a sermon and pausing in the middle, middle to illustrate and awaken, sometimes God will illustrate a point by pausing our lives with an event. In the present, we have a global event. It's God's illustration for all people in all the world that we do not control our lives. We can go about our lives making plans making business proposals or vacations, but oftentimes we don't consider that our lives are frail, that our whole life path could change in an instant. Just think about this. A virus changed the world. A cure could change it. A layoff or a promotion changes your life. A death or a birth. It can change in a moment, quickly. This virus we can stay is not good, but we should give thanks to God that he sends illustrations so we might again realize that we do not control our destiny. All of us are in the same boat, the poor and the wealthy, the citizen or the president, the weak and the powerful. We are all like we are alive for a short time. Like it says in verse 14, a mist. And we don't know the day when our spirit will depart, the day of our death. In fact, we don't know what will happen tomorrow. We really don't. In response... James chapter 4, verse 15. This should be what we all say with regard to our lives. Look at it. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. And yet, it shouldn't just be something that we say. It should be a motto for our lives. Every plan, every activity, every part of our lives should be submitted to God's will. I know for myself, I have found myself more than ever saying, (laughs) Lord willing, because I just don't know. Because right now, our living illustration that we're living in, it makes this oh so plain. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And if we are to redeem this time, if we are to redeem this time, we must not forget this lesson for the future. Remember, James is writing this message to the church. This isn't done to believers. They know intellectually of God's sovereign control. They believe in it. But they're living in a form of atheism. This is practical atheism. A true atheist, he... Uh, does not believe in God, and he lives accordingly. A practical atheist, though, believes in God, but lives self-sufficiently. James says that such a way to live is to boast in your arrogance. Believing in God, but making plans, planning your budget out, selling and trading stocks without a thought to God's will. My friends, God may have something for you to do, But you don't know about his plans, for you're living self-sufficiently. You're making your own plans. You, as a Christian, know you should pray and be submitted to God. But practically, you might be running your own life. Verse 17 says you are are sinning by omitting to do what you know is right. Let me ask you this. Can you yield your plans to life, your plans to God, maybe to move or take a job? Or start a hobby, make a budget, or a vacation. Are you willing to say to God, Lord, I am willing, whatever you will. Is there a ministry opportunity that he has for you? Lord, I am willing, whatever you will. This is not the voice of arrogance. It is the sweet voice of a humble heart. This is the relationship of which God desires, and you will find the most joy. I think of the opportunity Ellie just presented to us. She just had it in her heart, and she went with it. She was willing to change her plans and have a food drive. All right. To close, and finally, we looked at the gift for godly relationships. With all these flaws, we need a gift. Let's look at verses 6 through 10, right in the middle. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We have looked at four flawed relationships. Two among people, and two with God. And if you've noticed, there's been a common theme in all these flawed relationships. It's pride and arrogance and boasting that stood at the center. We saw first the the prayerless pride, living for one's passions without a thought or a prayer to God. We next saw adulterous pride. This is cheating on God and worshiping the world's seductions. We saw presumptuous pride, judging in the place of God, slandering others. And finally, we saw a self-sufficient pride. Believing in God by ignoring his will. Pride is the killer of relationships. It strangles fellowship. And it is in direct conflict with the heart of God. So for any amount of pride that we have in our hearts, we need help. And thankfully, sandwiched right in here between these four relationships, beginning in verse 6, God gives a gift to overcome pride. It has killed so many relationships. And he gives grace. Grace. That is, unmerited, unearned, undeserved mercy and forgiveness and power to overcome sin in one big package. He doesn't just give a small measure. James says he gives more grace. He gives more grace in verse 6. The Apostle John in his gospel says, We have all received grace upon grace, John 1.16. The Apostle Paul says, Where sin abounds, grace abounded all the more Romans 5:20 Grace is what we need for grace is humbling grace is humbling and God through Jesus Christ gives more grace Verse 6 obviously is directly connected with God's jealousy that we read about in verse 5 Think back to the groom and bride analogy The jealous groom Jesus gives outrageous forgiveness to his wandering bride It's grace in response, she is humbled. And through her humility, she receives more grace. For God gives grace to the humble. James quotes here from Proverbs 3.34. This is the way that grace and humility transform the Christians through the gospel. Grace yields humility. Humility brings grace. Grace, grace ushers in more humility, and so on. It's a perpetual cycle. It's an ongoing gift from God, through the gospel. Are you humbled by Jesus giving you grace, and then more grace, and then more grace? Is it humbling to stand in the face of such committed love and receive forgiveness? It is. But there's a warning in verse 6. In the face of such grace, it is possible to remain unaffected, too proud to accept the grace. And for those who remain Hardened in pride, it says God opposes the prouder in direct conflict with God and in cooperation with the devil. This is a fearful thought if you really take it to heart. That is why verse 7 instructs us to submit to God and resist the devil. The beauty of humility of a world rightly ordered in the headship under the headship of God is what the devil has sought to destroy from the very beginning. The devil places the great lie of pride in your ear. Your passion, you would say, is more important. Your argument is right. You're in control. You're a judge. You're the judge. It's a great lie. The beautiful life of humility is found in submitting to God. It is not possible to submit to God while tolerating the devil. Devil. The humble recognizes God's rightful control and rejects the devil's deceptions. How is this possible with such a great adversary? It comes through a greater God who gives the gift of increasing grace and humility. By the grace of Jesus, you can draw near to God and he promises to draw near to you, verse 8. Don't let foolish pride keep you from your groom's great love. Humble yourself. If it helps, think of another biblical application, the biblical picture. Return home like the repentant prodigal son, and the father will run out to embrace you, as the story says in Luke 15. This is is the picture. A humble sinner met with greater grace, God then runs to you. In response to grace, cleanse your hands, it says, your external behaviors, and your hearts, your internal attitudes. The word of God that you're hearing demands a response. Reject the double-mindedness of trying to submit to God while following the devil. In reaction to grace, let the wretchedness of your sin be known. Weep over its effects. Mourn over the shame. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will give more grace. As Hebrews Hebrews 4.16 declares, grace in time of need. Now, I want to tell you a story. There were two Christian men, friends, who were in conflict for months. He knew he was right and his friend knew he was right. Neither were going to back down. Both felt strongly. To settle their conflict, they had sought counsel and mediation without resolution. Finally, they left a discussion knowing that the only solution may be to separate. Neither of them liked the outcome, but what else could be done? That night, they both left brokenhearted. They both mourned and prayed over their own sin and the situation. They asked God For wisdom in his will. And in praying, one man reflected on the verse, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's James 4.10 here. It's also 1 Peter 5.6. That man, though he wasn't convinced that he was wrong, he humbled himself, submitting to God and to his friend with much anxiety. And in that action, there was beauty seen between both of them. The beauty of humility. The conflict was not solved, but there was trust in God. The devil lost, and God was honored. Miraculously, their relationship was saved, and with time, God's promise to exalt was fulfilled. This is the beauty of humility. It works in all relationships, husband and wife, parent and child, co-workers. Family, God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. God fights against the arrogant and promotes the lowly. This is a promise that you can count on. Think about this as we conclude. Rather than doing it on your own, do it his way and experience the beauty, the splendor, the majesty of humility in your relationships with God and man. God gives the grace needed for all his people to grow in humility. Let's do as the scripture instructed us. Let's pray. Let's ask for God to move in our lives. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would direct us, guide us. May we live rightly with you over us, Lord. May we not be deceived by Satan, but may we run towards you. Experiencing your grace, growing in humility, accepting your grace as only sinners can and receiving more grace. Thank you, God, that you give grace upon grace. Thank you for Jesus Christ, his life and death and resurrection that gives us such amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.